Hello. This is episode 19 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. Meditation is a word received with a variety of reactions. Your straight-laced business type, dying breed, I know, will likely receive it as some external, quote-unquote, hippie shit. Buddhists and Hindus can tell you all about it. New Age folk will try to give you some form of strange twist in the format of, of an absurdly long oral dissertation. Some Christians will call it heresy, and some Christians will give you all the instructions they can. The greatest misconception for most, however, is that for some reason they'll be instantly masterful in their practice. The next step is them not being able to clear their mind due to the inability to immediately think about absolutely nothing. The first issue with this is that the initial frustration typically has something to do with the belief that all meditation has an end goal of emptying the mind. While meditation can, be, can indeed be a disciplined practice of emptying the mind, this isn't its only form. Meditation can be focused on a question, a piece of music, a problem, a search for ideas, God himself, or as initially believed, nothing. Assess what you need for meditation carefully, and then guide your meditation accordingly. The second issue with the meditation practice of emptying the mind is that you'll be able to achieve an empty mind without actually emptying it to begin with. Either sit with legs crossed as stereotypically understood or perform a physical act during your meditation. Then, let all your thoughts fly out. Focus on the accelerated but flowing release of all of them. Only then will you eventually reach blank canvas state. Then you can begin. That was a post I wrote some weeks ago on the misconceptions of meditation because I was seeing a lot of people um, being very frustrated with their meditative practices. My father included, actually. He comes to me saying, you know, I just can't, I can't seem to clear my mind, you know, fast enough. I, I can't seem to quiet my mind. And he assumed that this sort of starting point for meditation was this, you know, very stereotypical Western understanding of Buddhist practices of meditation. So basically, assuming that if their mind isn't immediately empty, that they're failing. Well, in order to empty something, you need to empty it to begin with. Um, so you need to let all the thoughts fly out. This is something I learned three years ago. Uh, this is my first time successfully meditating and emptying the mind and being able to reach this blank canvas state. Um, so in terms of... In terms of the misconceptions of what you can guide meditation towards, as I said in the piece, it doesn't just have to be about emptying the mind for this blank canvas state. You can sort of let your thoughts flow around a certain idea. So as I said before, you can meditate in a piece of music and you can see what thoughts arise and what sentiments arise from a piece of music. You can meditate on a problem. You know, you haven't really figured out an immediate solution to a problem. You know, you've tried everything in terms of traditional direct logical practices, but uh, meditation surrounding a problem can help your thoughts flow through the subconscious into the conscious of methods to solve a problem you may not have initially realized. Uh, you can meditate in a search for ideas. So let's say I am, I'm currently writing, uh, I'm writing two books right now. I'm writing a myth that uh, I'm, I'm in talks with a publisher about, but I'm also uh writing weekly chapters uh, of the novella done through Blood and Rain books called Koyosen Kihira. Um, so with that, I need to stretch more and more ideas. So I'll meditate to have more ideas arise within the context of that narrative I'm trying to create. Obviously, being an Orthodox Christian, I meditate on God himself. That's pretty straightforward. Uh, and all for all you Christians, don't think meditation is too far away from prayer. Um, prayer is very direct. You know, praying to God, um, for me, doing morning Orthodox and evening Orthodox prayers, it's a very direct prayer to God, whereas meditation is more indirect. So you're, you're more receiving on what God has to tell you if he has anything to say at all, and he usually does. Um, so that that's sort of the realm of meditation, but I'm, I'm using that piece to sort of preface eventually a practice on meditating on the subject of today's podcast, which is ancestors and past lives. Um, 
for those of you who are Christian like myself and you hear the words past lives, you probably think heresy. I understand. Um, but as you start to do more and more research of the early church, um, if you go down a certain road, you can find that there were there was quite a bit of evidence for the belief of reincarnation in the early church. For those of you who are young in your, your path of faith, um, I wouldn't recommend going down this route. I would just recommend being becoming more rooted in your faith so you're not led astray. Um, but in terms of people who, you know, are further down their path with Christianity, um, I'll just say start to look into the Dead Sea Scrolls, start to look into the Zoar, start to look into the Zoroastrian influence on Christianity and the belief of linear time and just one life into one destination. Um, and I'll leave that at that for the Christians. Um, but in terms of meditating on your ancestors, um, there's quite a bit of mounting evidence that not only do you sort of inherit uh, things like, you know, your, your hair color, your eye color, your stature, your blood type from your ancestry, you know, these very tangible physical traits, but that you inherit, um, you inherit memories, you inherit skills, you inherit tendencies, natures, affinities from, from your ancestry. This is more genetic than we initially thought. Um, and this is something that, you know, is very prevalent in faiths that are polytheistic and cyclical in nature, uh, Hinduism, the Norse pantheon, the Egyptian pantheon, um, Shinto, Taoism, not necessarily Taoism, um, but a lot more folk religions. So there's, there, there's a bigger understanding of this in these religions, whereas to Abrahamic religions and to the Western world, it's kind of this alien thing that's actually now being backed up by science. Now, science is kind of a polarizing thing these days. There's the science that truly does have the people's best interests in mind, but as we're starting to learn with things like nutrition, um, you know, the compilation of the food pyramid, sugar lobbies, corn syrup lobbies of places like Archer Daniels Midland, that, you know... What is being sold as science really is being sold to the highest bidder in terms of what is said to the general public about uh, a given topic. So what does that mean? That means as people, as humans, we need to do a lot of research and we need to discern what we believe to be the truth, um, most rooted in fact. So I know science is a bit polarizing right now, but science is starting to um, travel into this frontier of inheriting Inheriting nature and inheriting skill sets from your ancestry. Let's start with something a bit simpler. How DNA can carry memories of traumatic stress down the generations. This is from cortis.europa.eu, European Commission of Cortis E Research Results. DNA can carry memories of traumatic stress down the generations. Animal and human investigations indicate that the impact of trauma experienced by mothers affects early offspring development, but new research is also discovering that it is also actually encoded into the DNA of subsequent generations. Violent acts such as those encountered during warfare or terrorism obviously have a profound impact on mental health, not only for the surviving victims, but also for the perpetrators. The individuals involved are often at the mercy of a pernicious cycle of destructive thoughts and behaviors. In an effort to enable more effective humanitarian interventions, the EU-funded MemoTV project, in parentheses, Epigenetic, Neural, and Cognitive Memories of Traumatic Stress and Violence, is investigating the full scale of the mechanism by which these stressful experiences actually shape memories. The team's recently published findings indicate that the individuals undergoing a negative response to traumatic stressors can actually pass this on subsequent generations through DNA processes. The role of DNA methylation is stress transference. The Memo TV team is investigating the transference mechanism at the epigenetic, neural, and cognitive levels in humans, as well as exploring how these traumatic memories contribute towards mental suffering within different cultural settings. Publishing's recent findings in the journal Transla Translational Psychiatry, the researchers outline how they investigated the genetic changes seen in the epigenetic patterns by studying maternal stress experienced during pregnancy in the favelas of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. The researchers gathered saliva samples from a total of 386 people, 
grandmothers, their daughters, and grandchildren. They also collected information from the grandmothers and daughters about their experience of violence within their partnerships and communities before, during, and after pregnancy. Combining both databases, the researchers were able to make predictions about the DNA of the grandchildren of those grandmothers who had experienced violence while pregnant with the mothers for five locations within circulatory regulation genes. They're able to conclude that violence experienced during pregnancy leads to different DNA activity in children, known as methylations, whereby the genome reacts to the environment by activating or deactivating genes. The methylation took place regardless of whether the violence source is a partner or came from the wider community. Methylation is considered an epigenetic mechanism as it is not the genetic sequence itself which is altered, but rather the legibility or activity of the coded information. Methylation patterns are an evolutionary device which makes it easier for an organism to adapt to its environment. In this instance, the researchers hypothesize that the methylation patterns might result in children more fearful or alternatively more aggressive as an adaptive behavioral response. The researchers suggest that in the future, prenatal DNA methylation patterns could be used as biomarkers for psychological health and risk to psychiatric disorders. Now, this is sort of dipping one foot into this realm. So this is this is speaking more on the realm of stress during pregnancy and exposure to violence during pregnancy influencing potential psychiatric disorders encoded in DNA, but it doesn't necessarily have anything to do wholeheartedly or rather entirely with inheriting memories, inheriting tendencies, and inheriting traumas. And when I say traumas, I mean trauma specifically. So, not psychiatric disorder in general, but trauma tied to a specific past event, or a similar stimulus triggered from the same specific past event, inherited either from a parent or an ancestor. So, that's, that's something that can be pretty easily understood, that if you were born in a pregnancy that occurred during very traumatic events that you're going to inherit trauma. So I think that's a pretty easy thing to understand, um, and that's sort of a nice little bridge that we can take to understanding um, this research that's, that's coming forward about inheriting memories themselves and habits tied to trauma themselves, and the same things that I'm, I'm speaking on with all this research that it appears that we do indeed inherit backed up both by science and by many religious practices. Now that we've gotten our feet wet, let's dive into an article from Scientific American about actual genetic memory, titled, Genetic Memory, How We Know Things We Never Learned. I met my first savant 52 years ago, and I've been intrigued with that remarkable condition ever since. One of the most striking and consistent things in the many savants I have seen is that they clearly know things they never learned. Leslie Lemke is a musical virtuoso even though he has never had a music lesson in his life. Like Blind Tom Wiggins a century before him, his musical genius erupted so early and spontaneously as an infant that it could not possibly have been learned. It came, quote-unquote, factory installed. In both cases, professional musicians witnessed and confirmed that Lemke and Wiggins somehow, even in the absence of formal training, had innate access to what can be called, quote-unquote, the rules, or the vast syntax of music. Alonzo Clemens has never had an art lesson in his life. As an infant, after a head injury, he began to sculpt with whatever is handy, Crisco or whatever, and now as a celebrated sculptor who can mold perfect specimen of any animal with clay in an hour or less after only a single glance at the animal itself, every muscle and tendon perfectly positioned. He has had no formal training. To explain the savant who has innate access to the vast syntax and rules of art, mathematics, music, and even language, in the absence of any formal training, and in the presence of major disability, quote-unquote genetic memory, it seems to me, must exist along with the more commonly recognized cognitive-slash-semantic and procedural-slash-habit-memory circuits. So, to put in plain English, we inherit genetic memory, not just physical attributes of genetics that are seen with the naked eye. Back to the article, genetic memory, simply put, is complex abilities and actual sophisticated knowledge inherited along with more typical and commonly accepted physical and behavioral characteristics, okay, as, I, as, I just, as I just stated before. 
In Savants, the music, art, or mathematical quote-unquote chip comes factory installed. In addition to the examples mentioned above, I describe others in my book, Islands of Genius, the Bountiful Mind of the Autistic, acquired this in sudden savant. Genetic memory is not an entirely new concept. In 1940, A.A. Brill quoted Dr. William Carpenter, who, in comparing math prodigy Zara Colburn's calculating powers to Mozart's mastery of musical composition, wrote the following. So this is a quote from, once again, from A.A. Brill quoting Dr. William Carpenter. Quote goes as follows. In each of the foregoing cases, then, we have a peculiar example of the possession of an extraordinary con congenital aptitude for certain mental activity which showed itself at so early a period as to exclude the notion that it could have been acquired by the experience of the individual. Basically, once again, to put in plain English, they, the people with these extraordinary abilities were far too young for it to be chalked up to them learning this ability because they were just simply too young to have the time to develop such a skill level. To such congenital gifts we give the name of institutions. It can scarcely be questions that like the instincts of the lower animals, they are the expressions of constitutional tendencies embodied in the organism of the individuals who manifest them. So basically, he's very eloquently and poetically saying that clearly they genetically have a disposition, they have genetically have a factory setting of being a genius in a given field, whether this is music or mathematics or what have you. Carl Jung used the term collective unconscious to define his even broader concept of inherited traits, institutions, or sorry, intuitions, and collective wisdom of the past. Walter Penfield, in his pioneering 1978 book, Mystery of the Mind, also referred to three types of memory. Quote-unquote animals, he wrote, quote-unquote, particularly show evidence of what might be called racial memory. In parentheses, this would be the equivalent of genetic memory. He lists the second type of memory as that associated with quote-unquote conditioned reflexes, and a third type as quote-unquote experiential. The two latter types would be consistent with the terminology commonly applied to quote-unquote habit or procedural memory and quote-unquote cognitive or semantic memory. In his 1998 book, The Mind's Past, Michael... Gazaniga wrote this. This is a quote from Minds Past, once again. Quote goes as follows. The baby does not learn trigonometry, but knows it. Does not learn how to distinguish figure from ground, but knows it. Does not need to learn, but knows that when one object with mass hits another, it will move the object. The vast human cerebral cortex is chock full of specialized systems, ready, willing, and able to be used for specific tasks. Moreover, the brain is built under tight genetic control. As soon as the brain is built, it starts to express what it knows, what it comes with from the factory, and the brain comes loaded. The number of special devices that are in place and active is staggering. Everything from perceptual phenomena to intuitive physics to social exchange rules comes with the brain. These things are not learned. They are innately structured. Each device solves a different problem. The multitude of devices we have for doing what we do are factory installed. By the time we know about an action, the devices have already performed it. So this is speaking to something very interesting. That he's essentially claiming that we're not, we don't learn anything. We already, we just discover what we already know. Now, that's, that's a hell of a blanket statement for me to get behind, but I do think this is the truth within specific instances uh, as this whole, what this whole podcast episode is about. Blanket statements, uh, on a side note, folks, are a rarity in my mind. There are very, very, very few blanket statements that are actually true. Take, for example, some of the division that we're seeing with police. We're seeing that all police is good or all police is bad. Well, I can very clearly tell you that that is not the case. There are indeed good cops and bad cops. There are good police departments and bad entire police departments. But to blanket statement, the entirety of police being evil or good is just absolutely asinine and illogical. The Oakland Police Department, I have witnessed firsthand their innate corruption. However, there are other police departments within the Bay Area that I've seen that are truly a, an asset to the communities that they serve. So, back to the article from Scientific American. As we take a break from this very detailed, intense speech on a very interesting topic. So, to conclude this article... 
Stephen Pinker's two there's Stephen Pinker's 2003 book The Blank State, the modern denial of human nature refutes that the blank state theories of human development. Brian Butterworth in his 1999 book What Counts, How Every Brain Is Hardwired for Math points out that babies have many specialized innate abilities, including numerical ones that he attributes to a quote-unquote number module encoded in the human genome from ancestors 30,000 years ago. Marshall Nivenberg from the National Heart Institute provided insight into the actual DNA-RNA mechanics of this innate knowledge in an article titled Genetic Memory, published in 1968 in JMA. Whether called genetic ancestral or racial memory, or intuitions or congenital gifts, the concept of a genetic transmission of sophisticated knowledge well beyond instincts is necessary to explain how prodigious savants can know things that they learn. We tend to think of ourselves as being born with magnificent and intricate piece of organic machinery, quote-unquote hardware, we call the brain, along with a massive but blank hard drive, in parentheses, memory. What we become, it is commonly believed, is an accumulation and culmination of our continuous learning and life experiences which are added one by one to memory. But the prodigious savant apparently comes already programmed with a vast amount of innate skill and knowledge in his or her area of expertise, factory-installed, quote-unquote, software, one might say, which accounts for the extraordinary abilities over which the savant innately shows mastery in the face of often massive cognitive and other learning handicaps. It is an area of memory function worthy of much more exploration and study. Indeed, recent cases of acquired savants or accidental genius have convinced me that we all have such factory-installed software. I discussed some of those cases in detail in the August issue of Scientific American under the title, quote-unquote, Accidental Genius. In short, certain persons after head injury or disease show explosive and sometimes prodigious musical art or mathematical ability, which lies dormant until released by a process of recruitment of still intact but and uninjured brain areas, rewiring to those newly recruited areas and releasing the until then latent capacity contained therein. Finally, the animal kingdom provides ample examples of complex inherited capacities beyond physical characteristics. Monarch butterflies each year make a 2,500-mile journey from Canada to a small plot of land in Mexico where they winter. In spring, they begin to do the long journey back north, but it takes three generations to do so. So no butterfly making the return journey has flown the entire route before. How do they quote-unquote know a route they never learned? It has to be inherited GPS-like software, not a learned route. Oscine birds such as sparrows, thrushes, and warblers learn their songs from listening to others. Subacine species such as flycatchers and their relatives, in contrast, inherit all the genetic instructions they need from these complex arias. Even if raised in soundproof isolation, the subacine birds can give the usual call for the species with no formal training or learning. There are so many more examples from the animal kingdom which vary complex traits, behaviors and skills are inherited in innate. We call those instincts in animals, but we haven't applied this concept to the complex inherited skills and knowledge of humans. Some will argue that what the prodigious savant inherits is the proclivity or scaffolding on which learning can be applied unusually rapidly rather than knowledge itself. And like the Austin bird species, they learn from others. My position is that the prodigious savant is a convincing example of subacine genetic inheritance of the actual instructions and knowledge that precede learning. That is not to say such inherited skill in parentheses nature cannot be cultivated, enhanced, and improved in parentheses nurture. They can be. But I agree with Dr. William Carpenter that savants demonstrate a congenital aptitude for certain mental activity which showed itself at so early a period as to exclude the notion that it could have been acquired by the experience of the individual. I call that genetic memory and I propose that it exists in all of us. The challenge is how to tap that dormant capacity non-intrusively and without a brain injury or similar incident. This is fascinating. I know I've, I've read a very wordy article from a very pretentious news outlet in Scientific American. But they've gathered quite a bit of research and they've chronicled it very well, and they made their case for why they believe genetic memory exists. And I would have to agree. I'll use myself as an example. Things that I have had natural, sort of, I've had natural ability with from the get-go. I've been a natural stage performer. 
I had stage performers in my ancestry. I've been a natural writer. I've had writers in my ancestry on both sides of the family, both in terms of narrative and in terms of journalism in the Canary Islands. And I've had a natural affinity for combat. Uh, combat sports. My first combat sport, uh, full disclosure, is actually fencing when I was seven years old. And by the time I was eight, I was beating 15-year-olds who had three years experience. So, where does that come from? Where does the prodigy come from? Well, speaking on the last bit of combat, I have soldiers in my ancestry, as well as fencers, as well as boxers. So, the three things that I love to do most, the three things that I have the deepest affinity for, are things that are in my ancestry. Now, let's say I, I have no surgeons in my ancestry. Does that mean that I couldn't be an amazing surgeon? No, no, but I would be starting from ground zero. Um, I would have to purely cultivate the skill, and that would be encoded in my DNA for my descendants to inherit. So, what does this say for memory? What does this say for tendencies? Why am I even bringing this up? I find that in life, too many of us are going through the motions, are, are going through all the tasks that we need to do, all the errands, battling all the white noise, getting from point A to point B that we never really fully understand ourselves. Now, I don't mean being in some constant state of being in your own head, and living in a s series of head trips, that's not what I mean, but understanding who it is that you are really from the get-go, your identity as it stands at this time, what is true, what is temporary, and then going a step further, your roots. And this can mean a number of things. This can mean your ancestors, learning who your ancestors were. This can mean learning the culture of your ancestors. And therefore, learning what it is that you've inherited. And knowing wholeheartedly that you have inherited tendencies, traits from your ancestors. My grin but not just the physicality of my grin, but the essence and energy behind the grin of mine is apparently exactly like my grandfather's. When describing my demeanor, it has been described as my great-grandfather who was a boxer down in Buenos Aires, Argentina. We can start to understand better our habits are habits that seem to have come hardwired, or affinities that seem to have come hardwired. I'll give some more examples. With my grandfather on my father's side, my grandfather had a certain way of investigating certain scenarios and investigating certain topics that seemed borderline relentless, that my father recognized in me that he didn't necessarily have in that essence, but that he recognized from his father, my grandfather, from the Canary Islands. So as we start to peel back generations and generations and generations of our ancestors, not only can we learn about you know our culture, I think it's really important, um, I think it's abundantly important to know about one's ethnic background, where his ancestors came from, the culture that they were brought up in. There's a great Marcus Garvey quote. For those of you who don't know, Marcus Garvey was one of the Renaissance, the, sorry, the Harlem Renaissance writers and poets. Him and I share a birthday, actually. And he has a quote saying, A people without the knowledge of their past history, origin, and culture is like a tree without roots. So, while I do support the narrative of establishing one's own culture and realizing the culture that they've been brought up in, 
it is important to know the culture of someone's ethnic origin. So, while I grew up in Oakland, California, and I grew up with quite a bit of Californian culture, quite a bit of Oakland culture, quite a bit of Asian culture uh, in my immediate vicinity, um, my ethnic background culturally is, as I mentioned before in previous episodes, um, not just Italian, Spanish, or French, but as we get more specific, Sicilian from Catania, which is on the east coast of Sicily. It's a very different city compared to Palermo, which is the city most commonly associated with Sicily. Uh, I am from, my, my ethnic background, the other part of Italy it comes from is just outside Torino, or Turin, for you native Italian speakers. Um, that's Piedmonte, that is a mountainous region, it's the doorstep to the Alps from Italy. Uh, quite a bit of Occitan speakers, for those of you who don't know Occitan, Occitan is a specific ethnic group that goes across Italy, France, and Spain, and I believe parts of Switzerland as well, that has their own language and own culture and own, own customs. And of the growing movements in the within the EU and within Europe in general of separatist movements, there is a growing Occitan movement in addition to the movement from one of my other cultures, so from France, but specifically the Basque region, which is the most southwest region of France, um, and from Spain, the Spanish Basque region, so just across the border, and then the Canary Islands, which are several islands right off the coast of Africa. So for me to say, you know, if I was scraping the surface, right, saying I was just Spanish, Italian, and French, then there are certain customs within Spain, Italy, and France that none of my ancestors grew up with. Um... Joel Braz from Madrid, um, and him and I grew up with very, very different Spanish customs because he's from the, his his family's from the center of the country, and my Spanish family come from two completely different ethnic groups that just happen to be within Spain, the Canarian uh, ethnic group, the Wanches, and the, the Basques. Now, some interesting tidbits I've mentioned before about the Basques. For those of you who haven't listened to some of my previous episodes, the Basques have the last untraceable language on Earth, uh, going back at least 3,500 years. Um, no one knows where it came from. People also speculate that the original inhabitants of the Canary Islands were the descendants of Atlantis, which is another whole crazy thing. Uh, specifically, the Wanches. Um, their archaeologists have linked the fall of Atlantis to two places. Uh, actually, three places. Possibly four. Um, as I'm flowing through this. Uh, near, off the coast of Cuba. So actually near the Bermuda Triangle. Um, the Basque region of Spain. So the Bay of Biscay. The Canary Islands. And uh, Iceland. So two of the four. From my ethnic background. So as, as we start to paint more and more of a picture... I start to understand what customs it is that I came from. And then we start to dial in more into the people. Well, I find that the performers, the there, there's some visual artists down in Argentina that are from my family, uh, from the Sicilian, French Basque, and Piedmontese background who migrated down there. And some performers. Some performers in singing. Um... And then there are boxers and soldiers. And I start to paint more and more of a picture of my makeup. And things that I started to originally think were just original pieces of myself were really just things that, in my mind now, after much research and much understanding, both from a scientific aspect and from a spiritual aspect, which we'll get to, which is why I started this podcast with uh, one of my pieces about meditation, we start to paint a picture that uh, these aren't things of my own accord. These are things inherited. These are natures inherited. These are affinities inherited. So now switching gears into another bit that I think this 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 one's going to be a bit harder to receive. Um, it's going to be received with more skepticism, um, but. 
it's been spoken of uh, across many faiths, including, as I said before, including the early church, uh, reincarnation. Um, it's been spoken of in early Judaism. It's been spoken of in early Christianity, the Norse pantheon, the Egyptian pantheon. Um, the the belief systems that are being uncovered on um, both in Egypt and the Amazon of reincarnation. Many folk religions of East Asia. So there's there's a lot of ancient belief systems that believe in reincarnation and believe in connecting to past lives. And what some people believe um, was sort of the the corruption of Christianity. Not necessarily the corruption of Christianity, because Christianity in itself isn't corrupt, but some of the information that was sort of stonewalled, um, actually by the early Orthodox Christians against um, not the early Gnostics, but the early Gnostic Christians. And there is a difference, by the way. Um, this information about reincarnation and connecting with past lives. So I thought the best place to start is to read some examples of children who have accurately guessed their past lives. This is from Psychology Today, an article uh, by, the man, by a man named Michael Jarr, posted on December 13th, 2014, titled, Children Who Seemingly Remember Past Lives. Why, why might some children recount apparent past life memories with such vividness? The ultimate truth is stranger than fiction accounts are to be found in Return to Life, Extraordinary Cases of Children Who Remember Their Past Lives, a book published by Jim Tucker, a psychiatry professor at the University of Virginia. Tucker follows in the footsteps of the late Ian Stevenson, who for decades scrupulously investigated cases in which young children around the world spontaneously volunteered, in great detail, recollections that seemed to be about someone else's life. Much of the time, the person being spoken of had died violently or unnaturally. In parentheses, in a prior post, I referenced one such instance where a two-and-a-half-year-old girl became distraught over her inability to find, quote-unquote, her children, and described, quote-unquote, her having lost her life in a road accident, in parentheses. Between them, Stevenson and Tucker have compiled more than 2,500 cases, and 70% of them fit this pattern. In many of the cases, the person being spoken of could be identified through the specificity of information volunteered. Here, here's a look at two very impressive, in parentheses, and recent instances. For the first, I'll quote directly from a story done by the University of Virginia magazine by Sean Lyons. It conveys, among other things, a sense of how befuddled parents are in such a situation. This beginning of the quote. When Ryan was four, he began directing imaginary movies. Shouts of action often echoed from his room. But the play became a concern for Ryan's parents when he began waking up in the middle of the night screaming and clutching his chest, saying he dreamed his heart exploded when he was in Hollywood. His mother asked his doctor about the episodes. Night terrors, the doctor said. He'll outgrow them. Then one night, as his mother tucked Ryan into bed, Ryan suddenly took hold of her hand. Mama, he said, I think I used to be someone else. He said he remembered a big white house in a swimming pool. It was in Hollywood many miles from his Oklahoma home. He said he had three sons, but that he couldn't remember their names. He began to cry, asking his mother over and over why he couldn't remember their names. The mother said, I really didn't know what to do. I was more in shock than anything. He was so insistent about it. After that night, he kept talking about it. I kept, kept getting upset about not being able to remember those names. I started to research the internet about reincarnation. I even got some books from the Library of Hollywood, Library on Hollywood, thinking their pictures might help him. I didn't tell anyone for months. End quote. And subquote within the grander quote. One day, as Ryan and his mom paged through one of the Hollywood books, Ryan stopped at a black and white still taken from a 1930s movie, Night After Night. Two men in the center of the picture were confronting one another. Four other men surrounded him. His mother didn't recognize any of the faces, but Ryan pointed to one of the men in the middle and said, Hey, Mama, that's George. We did a picture together. His finger then shot over to a man on the right wearing an overcoat and a scowl. That guy's me. I found me. The book didn't provide any names of the actors pictured, but she quickly confirmed that Ryan said... That, sorry. She quickly... The book didn't provide any names of the actors pictured, but she quickly confirmed that the man Ryan said was George in the photo was indeed a George. George Raft. 
an all-but-forgotten film star from the 1930s and 40s. Still, his mother couldn't identify the man Ryan said had been him. She wrote Tucker, whom she eventually found through her online research and included the photo. Eventually, it ended up in the hands of a film archivist, who, after weeks of research, confirmed the scowling man's name was Martin Martin, an an uncredited extra in the film. Not long afterward, Tucker and the family traveled to California to meet Martin's daughter, who had been tracked down by researchers working with Tucker in a documentary. Tucker sat down with the woman before, meeting, before her meeting with Ryan. She'd been reluctant to help, but during her talk with Tucker, she confirmed dozens of, facts, dozens of facts that Ryan had given her about her father. Ryan said he danced in New York. Martin was a Broadway dancer. Ryan said he was also an agent, and that people, people where he worked had changed their names. Martin worked for years at a well-known talent agency in Hollywood where stage names were often created after his dancing career had ended. Ryan said his old address had Rock in its name. Martin lived at 825 North Roxbury Drive in, Be- in Beverly Hills. Ryan said he knew a man named Senator Five. Martin's daughter said she sorry, Martin's daughter said she had a picture of her father with a Senator Ives. Irving Eyes of New York, who served in the U.S. Senate from 1947 to 1959. And yes, Martin Martin had three sons. The daughter, of course, knew their names. So, with stunning accuracy, I mean, stunning accuracy to a point, obviously, because this child, Ryan, didn't know his past life's children's names, the three sons, but he was able to identify who he was in a photo that his mother found for him. And he was able to list a ton of details that were confirmed by his past life's daughter, actually. Fascinating. So here's the second case. The second case is equally remarkable. It involved two-year-old James Leninger, a Louisiana boy who loved toy planes. But he started to have repeated nightmares of a horrible plane crash. He would kick his legs up in the air, screaming, Airplane crash on fire, little man can't get out. Then during the day, he would slam his toy planes into the family's coffee table while yelling, Airplane crash on fire, to the extent there were dozens of scratches and dents into the table. James talked about the crash, relating that he had been a pilot and that he had flown off a boat. His father asked him the name of the boat, and he said, Natoma. When his father remarked, that sounds Japanese to me, James replied, no, it's American. James went on to say that he had piloted a type of plane called a Corsair, that his nickname was Little Man, and that he had a friend on the boat named Jack Larson. After years of painstaking research, James learned that an American aircraft carrier, the USS Natoma Bay, had supported operations at Iwo Jima during that World War II battle, and that it had lost one pilot there, a young man from Pennsylvania named James Hudson. His plane crashed almost exactly as described, hit in the engine, exploding, crashing into the water and quickly sinking. And the pilot in the plane next to his, when this happened, was named Jack Larson. It's nearly impossible to conceive how children so young should have such vivid memories, or how they, in parentheses, or anyone connected with them, for that matter, could have known anything about such obscure figures from the past, whether it be Martin Martin or little man James Hudson. Nor do such children appear to be amused or su- sorry. Nor do such children appear to be abused or suffering from any trauma connected with their current life. Furthermore, the families in these cases are firmly believing Christians, for whom the concept of reincarna- reincarnation is foreign. The parents, besides being vexed in the extreme, are inevitably reluctant to have their children's cases publicized for fear of being mocked. These types of memories typically fade by the way around. Six years of age, according to Tucker. The kids involved usually express a desire as well as to fully embrace the life they're in now. However, the degree to which these children show heightened emotion in recounting these apparent memories is a tip-off to me that something truly significant is going on. A boy like James Leninger shows all the hallmarks of PTSD at age two. Why should he? When he gets a sense for the answer by realizing how fear, the most elemental of feelings, puts our entire being on red alert. The pupils dilate, muscles are tensed, and respiration is increased as the body prepares to fight, flee, or freeze. Meanwhile, the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal, in parentheses HPA, axis springs into action by releasing a cascade of hormones that serve to marshal bodily energy. 
If we are indeed in mortal peril, our entire body and mind tenses like a spring ready to snap. Our senses are honed to a fine edge. We notice every detail that could affect our existence. But consider what would ensue if all that energy had no outlet. If, because of a sudden accident or foul play, somebody could neither fight nor flee or trapped in freeze mode. We know that rats are given even a mild shock somehow transfer the fear associated with their particular stimulus on their pupils to even their pups' pups. Could there be such a mechanism somewhere between life and death where memories associated with the struggling person's circumstances are preserved? It would be akin to the echoes preserved down the eons of the Big Bang, observable through faint but distinct background radiation. Except in the cases we are considering the intensity of the person's feelings, his or her life energy, self-awareness, and being might somehow be captured in a fusion of space and time. This quote-unquote imprint might become available for another nation life form, not in, print, not in quote unquote his and quote unquote her memories, as in parentheses reincarnation, but a transmutation just the same. So, it's pretty fascinating stuff. There are people trying to scientifically define this. Um, I don't know how fruitful that's going to be, to be honest. But uh, now I'll sort of speak upon um, speak upon some past life stuff of my own. This time that we're in, by the way, um, is a very spiritually potent time. Um, this is the time of Passover, Ramadan, and uh, Lent. Now, for all of you Protestant and Catholic Christians, um, you know, you guys have already done Easter, but our Easter for Orthodoxy is until, uh, is until the end of the month. Actually, it's until May 1st, when we get to celebrate Pascha. So... We're still going through this very spiritually intense time. Um, and that's no accident. Uh, three years ago, um, three years ago to the day, actually. Actually, no, April, April 9th was, was the, uh, oh yeah, April 9th was the day. Um, When I was in Pascha, my first Pascha, Orthodox Easter, it was April 9th going into April 10th, so the midnight of April 10th, um, I was sort of granted a very intense stream of information about myself. I saw my entire life flash before my eyes. I was, I saw my future. I saw very clearly what my life was meant to be what my life is meant to be. And um, later I was able to write Blood and Rain, you know, through and through, soon after. Um, Blood and Rain was sort of granted, but some of the other things that I started to have were dreams of past lives. Um, when I say these weren't just sort of dreams of... Um, these weren't dreams of, you know, just very intense nature, you know, historical timing. These weren't dreams of seeing Paris in the Belle Epoque era. These weren't just dreams of seeing the Western United States during the Frontier era. These were vivid dreams in which I saw the essence of myself, and I saw and I viscerally felt that I was reliving something that already happened. These weren't things that were fabricated and crafted from my subconscious. These were things that were very clear to me. And there are people, the essence of which that I know today in these dreams of the past. And these are people in my life who, upon meeting, I felt I had known them before. Viscerally, I looked at them like, I know you. And it wasn't a, oh, you look like this person. It wasn't like a, oh, actually, we actually did meet at some point, but you didn't really know me then. You know, we met in passing. But it was, I, I know you. And I had felt this way with these small group of people in my life when I had met them. I felt this way about certain places when I came to them, specifically 
in Paris, and specifically in Northern California, uh, more remote parts of Northern California, more frontier-esque parts of California. And I had these dreams that sort of painted a picture of these past lives, of these people I had known, and indeed known in the past, and these places I indeed known in the past. And I started to learn more and more about myself. I started to learn more and more about the programming that <coughs> programming and affinities that I I came to this earth with. So what do I mention all this now? What do I mention this in a very spiritually potent time? Well I think it's first of all it's something that's been tugging on my heart lately as to is to meditate on to further learn about myself to, during this very spiritually potent time since the Great Conjunction. Um, so I, I can best know myself so I can best serve others. And I can best develop myself and therefore best help develop others. So tying this back to meditation, tying this back to past lives, tying this back to um, to ancestry. And as I, as I was recording this, my uncle Carlo, he sent me a... Uh, Sent me a big family photo of my ancestors on that, on that side. Um, specifically, uh, I believe my my grandmother's my grandmother's family. So my great grandparents on that side. Um, so I find I find spiritually called, and I find God is sort of pushing me towards this direction of learning more about myself in terms of meditating on my past lives and meditating. On my ancestors. So what does that look like? Well, it looks exactly what I just said at the very beginning of this podcast. I need to let all my thoughts fly out. I need to indeed empty the mind a bit of all the white noise before I can start to meditate on receiving things from my past lives and receiving things from my ancestors. Now, before I do that, I'm going to pray for protection as a Christian, and prepare to not be led astray, and pray not to be deceived. And then, after that, I can go gracefully and wholeheartedly towards meditating, potentially, on these past lives and these ancestors. I know this is a topic that's that may not be as well-received as some of my other topics for my solo podcasts. But it's, I think this is the right time to do it. And for those of you who are curious, um, you, have the med- you have meditation practice at your disposal. The meditative practice at your disposal, rather. And you have plenty of ancestors you come from. That much is certain. So if you're not fully sold on the past lives bit, you can meditate in your ancestors. But if you're sold on both, then... I would say march on. This episode's being released with an episode I did with Flomotus titled Flowing Through Hot Takes with Flomotus. If you don't know who Flomotus is, go check him out. It's F L O W M O D U S. Uh, yesterday I recorded with uh, Ben Howes of Oaks and Oaths, so that episode's gonna be released next week, and then this Sunday. It is an episode on manifestation. So, today being released, episode 19, episode 20. This Sunday, episode 21. And next Thursday, episode 22. I hope you guys found some value in this. And I hope it does indeed help you. And I hope for those of you who are asking these kinds of questions, it provides some direction in how to proceed. So safe and enlightening meditations to all of you. And until next time, good night and good storms. Thank you.